You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, Northway family. They said the 7 a.m. wouldn't be full. They also said that the tomb wouldn't be empty. But he is risen. Oh, it's so good to be with you here this morning. Glad you're with us for uh, not only our Northway regular family here, but all the extended family friends who've joined us this morning. I wanna welcome you. My name is Chase Sumlin, one of the pastors here at Northway. Just so grateful you're with us. If you could do me a favor, if there are any seats between you, if you could scoot to the uh, center aisle here, that'll free up for some of the folks who are standing in the back that we can get in here this morning. But uh, as you're doing so, would you, uh, if you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn with me here briefly this morning to Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, we have the uh, unspeakable privilege this morning of celebrating the most meaningful, the most significant, the most joyful event that has ever occurred in human history. And it is the resurrection of our God and King, the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And in doing so, I wanna take you to one of the most telling passages in the Bible that records for us an eyewitness account of what actually happened that Sunday Easter morning nearly 2,000 years ago in Luke chapter 24. And I wanna read this passage, verses one through 12, over us this morning as we consider the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, starting in Luke chapter 24, verses one and following. On the first day of the week at early dawn, They went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now as Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. It's the word of our Lord. You know, while this passage may be familiar to some, I fear that maybe in many ways, this passage can actually be over familiar for many others to the point that if we're not careful, we can actually miss exactly what it was that Luke, the author, intended his readers to understand and take note of. And so briefly this morning, I just wanna draw your attention to three things, three observations in this text that I think Luke, the author, is inviting us into this Resurrection Sunday. Something to see, something to believe, 
and something to experience. First, something to see. I think Luke intends for us this morning in this account that he has given us to see the validity of Jesus's resurrection, the validity of Jesus's resurrection. You know, there are actually very few people today who, who doubt the historicity of Jesus himself as an actual person who lived on this earth, who taught good lessons, who was crucified for his claims of being the son of God. Very few people actually doubt that. What people tend to doubt though, what people tend to have the most difficulty believing is the fact that Jesus rose from the dead three days later in order to authenticate those claims. But what's helpful in this text, I think here, is to remember who it is that authored this account. We know him by the name of Luke. And understanding who Luke is helps us understand what the intention of this account is for. See, Luke originally wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ. Luke wasn't even a Jew. He was a Gentile who was a prominent physician, who was a doctor in the first century. Eventually, he became friends with the Apostle Paul. Eventually, he would indeed follow Jesus Christ. And he set out with the resources that he had to document, carefully research the details concerning Jesus's life and ministry. And eventually, along with the events that occurred after Jesus's resurrection and ascension, he became a detailed historian. He tells us, at the very beginning of the gospel of Luke and the very first words that he had carefully researched all of these details, that he had met with countless eyewitnesses to record what they heard and what they saw. If this brother had been uh, accessible to having his own television show in the first century, there's no doubt this would have been CSI Jerusalem. There's no doubt that this brother would have been the lead investigator. Because as such, we can see in what he records that he is not seeking to make up a fanciful story. He's not trying to manipulate readers to believe something that he knew was not true. What Luke is seeking to do here is tell us the truth about the facts of what was heard and what was seen by eyewitnesses living in that day. And he presents the story of Jesus's resurrection as an actual event with detailed historical markers and timestamps for the reader. He describes Jesus as an actual historical figure from Nazareth up near Galilee, that he gives us the details of his crucifixion and his burial, showing it to be in a known tomb in Jerusalem. He tells us exactly what day this event occurred. He tells us exactly what time it occurred. And he is careful to note things in this account that if someone were writing to make up a story, they simply would not have included, such as the fact that it was women who were the very first to discover the empty tomb and herald the good news of the risen Savior, an account by which in the first century would have been difficult to believe, untrusted witnesses. The fact that one of those women were a former prostitute would have not served as a credible witness in the first century. The fact that these women weren't expecting a resurrection when they came to the tomb. They were expecting to encounter a dead corpse. 
hence the burial spices. The fact that Jesus's closest followers, his own disciples, the 11 men that were left, they themselves did not believe that Jesus had resurrected from the dead. They believed it to be an idle tale made up. The point is this, if someone's gonna make up a story about a man rising from the dead, what you're not gonna do, first of all, is use the testimony of people who couldn't be trusted. Second of all, you're not gonna use actual locations, dates, times, names of living people who could all be verified as false. You're not gonna use that. In fact, Michael Patton, a brother that I graduated with from Dallas Seminary, went on to author a book called Now That I'm a Christian, What It Means to Follow Jesus, wrote that this is one of the things that makes Christianity so distinct in its claims. Because when you look at every other world religion, when you look at Muhammad, the founder in Islam, when you look at Joseph Smith, the founder of Latter-day Saints and Mormonism, you look at Gautama with Buddhism or even over into Hinduism, when it comes to the epicenter of their claims, none of their key details can be verified. They're either private encounters with the divine that had no eyewitnesses or they have no historical markers, no timestamps by which we can go back and verify with those who lived in that day as concurrent with the truth. Luke, however, goes beyond and way above to let the reader know here that the resurrection was actually claimed in the very city where Jesus was crucified within days of the crucifixion. And he writes this account only 30 years after the actual events took place where the eyewitnesses who are mentioned by name in this account were still alive when this was written so that their testimony could be easily verified as false by anyone who wanted to go seek out the truth. So Luke is trying to get us to confidently see that the resurrection wasn't just a made up tale, but an actual event that took place in time and space, verified by hundreds of people who not only saw the empty tomb, but beheld the risen Christ. Now, why is this important? Because if this is an actual historical event that took place, then this is not just a good story. This is a truth that our entire lives should be oriented around. This is a truth that will actually change the trajectory of every single one of us who believe this to be true. So Luke wants us to see something here. The validity, the validity of Jesus's resurrection. But there's something else that once you believe this to be true, you must believe next. And I think Luke also wants us now, secondly, to believe in the purpose of Jesus's resurrection. Now, the reason why the women weren't expecting to encounter a resurrected Jesus is because they had not understood nor embraced the, the intent as Jesus promised it would happen. Therefore, they forgot when they got to the tomb. Look again at the end of verse six. Note what the angels say to these women when they arrive at the tomb. Remember what he told you when y'all were in Galilee, that the son of man must 
be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and rise again on the third day. That word must in the original language is a very small word, but it is in a primary position in the Greek text, meaning it is the governing thrust over all three of those movements. It would read this way emphatically. Remember what he told you, that he must, he must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. He must be crucified and he must rise again on the third day. Meaning Jesus's death wasn't a tragic accident. It wasn't something that caught Jesus off guard. It wasn't something that occurred randomly at the hands of the Jews or the Romans apart from Jesus's will. It wasn't a backup plan because God's plan got missed somehow. And now he had to bring him out of the grave. No, it all happened on purpose. It all happened according to a plan. It's interesting, just yesterday, or I'm sorry, two days ago now, on Friday, on Good Friday, uh, my daughter's car got a flat tire, had a nail in it. So I took it up to Discount Auto to go get it plugged. I went up there about one o'clock in the afternoon and Discount Tire was closed. And I thought, okay, must be closed on Good Friday. I pulled up to the door, but I noticed that it said on the door on the sign, all Discount Tire stores are closed from 12 to three on Good Friday. I went 12 to three. That's interesting. That means these employees showed up for work, worked for a shift, went home. Nobody was up there. There were no cars. The garages were shut, nothing. And that they're going to come back up at three o'clock. So sure enough, I showed up at three o'clock and I come back there and the parking lot's packed. They're back at work. I go right in. I go right up to the counter and counter Patrick. I go, hey, Patrick. Why is Discount Tire closed from noon to three? And he goes, well, it's in, a, in accordance with Good Friday. And I said, yeah, but why noon to three? And he goes, I don't know. I assume it's just Good Friday. Can I tell you why it's noon to three? <laughs> because the scriptures tell us that on noon is when darkness descended over the earth while our Jesus hung on the cross. And at three o'clock is when he died and was taken down from the cross. 12 to three was the darkest hours in human history. Do you know why, Patrick? Because Jesus was dying for our sins. Now, had Patrick continued to listen to me in that moment and not quickly handed me off so he could go out into the garage, what I would have told Patrick in that moment is that he had to die. There could be no other way. Jesus had to die in order for our sins to be forgiven. He had to go to that cross because in that moment, he was exchanging our sins and taking them upon himself. The scriptures tell us that if we could have earned our salvation, Jesus would have never needed to come. All of our efforts in order to make ourselves acceptable and right and good before the holiness of God have all fallen short. 
There is no amount of works that you and I can do in order to earn the merit or the favor of God. There is nothing that we can do in of our own strength in order to earn the salvation that God has given. This was the point from the Old Testament forward. It's the reason why God instituted a sacrificial system where every time his people would sin, an animal would have to be slaughtered. And it's not because that animal could actually take our sins from us. It was setting us up to see that sin demanded Death and death for human beings demanded a perfect substitute, but there was not a perfect substitute to be found. And so God instituted a temporary system so that we could see the visual picture that our sin demanded death. But it wasn't meant to say, oh, okay, well, I guess I can do this. I'll just keep trying to do good. I'll keep bringing temporary sacrifices of my own and we'll make it good before God like this is some sort of credit rating system to where the more that I can do, I can improve my standing before God. No, it doesn't work that way. It was meant to lead us on our face to go, woe is me. There's nothing that I can do to earn or deserve the salvation of God. And these temporary sacrifices aren't gonna cut it. We need a full and permanent sacrifice. And that is why God in his mercy and out of the love in which he loved us, sent the only one who could qualify, Jesus Christ, who was without sin, perfect in every way, the lamb of God who had come to take away our sins. And that is why Jesus's last words on the cross weren't, Father, into your hands, I commit, commit my spirit. And you know what? Everybody watching right now, y'all better pay me back for this. No, Jesus's last words were what? It is finished. There is no more sacrifices needed. Jesus must die on the cross because he is the only one who could take away our sins. And the truth is he must rise from the dead because had Jesus just stayed dead, he would have proved no different than us. He would have been a sinner, at best a martyr for our own sins and that wouldn't have taken away our sins. We would still be in our sins today unless that Messiah comes up out of that grave. And because Jesus was sinless, death could not hold him. And on the third day, according to scripture, he rose from the dead. Why? Because he had to. So that you and I not only could have our sins forgiven, but we could experience the newness of life that comes in our joining to him by faith in the free gift of salvation that he has given us. Luke, in describing this account, is inviting us to embrace the true purpose of Jesus's death and resurrection. Not unlike the disciples who cognitively knew that he said he was gonna die, but had not trusted it to the point of dependence where they needed it. No, Luke invites us here to understand that by putting our trust in the fact of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact that he took our place and absorbed the judgment that we deserved, that he canceled our debt completely by paying for it with his own blood, that we receive what he has earned freely by grace for us, that we receive through faith, not by earning through works. If you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, oh, what a glorious day to do so today. To understand that by giving up on you, and putting your trust in him, you too can have the newness of life that is sown in through faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you by dying for you and rising from the grave. You too can be saved. And the whole reason of that, I think thirdly, is what Luke wants us to see here. 
not just to know of the fact of the resurrection, not just to believe in the purpose of the resurrection, but ultimately through faith in Jesus to experience the very power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Probably the most striking line in this whole passage occurs in verse five and six. When the angels say to these women who had come expecting to encounter a corpse, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. And you know, the same question could be asked of us today. You can walk down through the halls of human history and one of the things that you're gonna find is all the people before us who have passed and who are in the grave, but you will not find Jesus there. You can study all the world religions and all the founders of those world religions and every one of those founders are in the grave today, but you will not find Jesus there. No, you will not find Jesus among the dead. He is among the living. The claim of Christianity is that Jesus literally lived, literally died and was buried and then literally rose from the dead, possessing a new and glorious resurrected body with indestructible life free of any suffering, any weakness, any decay, who ascended bodily into heaven where he lives today, interceding for you and I. Every one of us in this room, every person in the city of Dallas around us right now are all searching for some sort of transcendent meaning in this life. Something, some person, some place that we can just hold on to that we believe that if we can only taste of it, then it will give us the meaning and purpose that our souls are aching for. And the problem is, is that anything that we try to hold on to in this life of this world is going to expire at some point. Now we can find transcendence for a brief moment in a new relationship, in a group that we uh, become a part of, uh, maybe in some new form of technology that blesses our lives, maybe some new TV show we can dive into, maybe a vacation, maybe a beautiful destination that we can go to for a moment. And yes, even for a moment in Wordle, we can have some transcendent meaning. But eventually it gets old. Eventually it breaks down and eventually it will die, including us. This is why you cannot expect to find life among dead. You cannot expect to encounter and experience the living transcendent meaning that your heart is aching for in dead things. That's why Jesus isn't counted among them. He is alive. And John tells us in his gospel that Jesus, the eternal son of God, became flesh and tabernacled among us, literally built his temple among us in his flesh. And John said, and we have seen his glory, glory, glory as of the only begotten son of the father, full of grace and truth, like an eternal transcendent temple, heaven came to earth. And when asked for a sign to prove this is who he was, Jesus said, the only sign you're gonna get is destroy this temple and then three days later, I'll rebuild it. And John tells us the temple he was referring to wasn't brick and mortar, it was his own body. And that three days later, he would resurrect. See, Jesus himself is the living transcendence that our hearts are aching for. And he is not dead. 
he is alive. And this is what Luke is inviting us into. Not just a cerebral grasp of the fact that he was a historical figure, but an eternally living person whom we can encounter and experience every day of our lives moving forward. You see, every one of us in the room, I would believe in this room, believes in the historical fact of Abraham Lincoln. Every single one of us in this room believes, no doubt, that he was a historical figure who lived and who did great things for our country. But you know what? There's not a single person in this room who is currently trusting in Abraham Lincoln for anything, who is depending upon him, let alone experiencing a relationship with him. You know why? Because he's dead. You can talk to Abraham Lincoln, but it's going to be a monologue, I assure you, not a dialogue. Yet sadly for many of us, we come to church with the same expectations of Jesus as we would Abraham Lincoln. We come to remember him, to sing some songs to him, recite historical things that he's done, but we're not actively trusting him for anything. We act as if he's dead. You are not going to find transcendent meaning and relationship that your heart is longing for through dead things, things that won't talk back to you, things that don't have the power to give you life and meaning. You need a personal experience and encounter with the living God. If you go on and read the rest of the gospel accounts, following Jesus's resurrection, Christ followers met with the living Christ. They walked with the living Christ. They communed with the living Christ. They had their lives utterly transformed by the living Christ. And then he ascended bodily into heaven where he now intercedes for us. In doing so, he sends his Holy Spirit to live within, to literally tabernacle within every person who places their trust in Jesus Christ. And to this day, through the Holy Spirit, God's people still meet with the living Christ. They still walk with the living Christ. They still commune with the living Christ. And they are still having their lives utterly transformed by the living Christ. How do I know? Because I know him. I've met him. I walk with him. I commune with him. He talks to me every single day through his word. I talk to him every single day through prayer. He has forgiven me of my sins. He is healing me still of my wounds and my past. And he right now has utterly transformed my life through his resurrected power. Why? Because he's alive. He's not dead. And I've seen marriages in this room transformed by the resurrected power. I've seen people rescued off suicide watch from the resurrected power. I've seen prodigal children return because of the resurrected power. I've seen people with depression and anxiousness and loneliness healed by the power of the resurrected Christ. And in the end, for every single one of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, that same resurrection power is what's gonna raise our bodies from the dead and live into glorious eternity with him alone. How do I know? Because he's not dead. He's alive. Amen? He is alive. And Luke, this morning, is inviting you to see the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to believe in the purpose of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and to experience the power of the resurrected Christ. That is the good news that is available for every one of us this morning because he lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you 
this morning for the hope that we have been given in Jesus Christ, that we do not worship a dead founder of the faith, one that is still in the grave to this day. No, we worship the living Christ, the one who has promised from the very beginning that anyone who puts their trust in him, anyone who puts their trust in him can have the promise that their sins have been forgiven because Christ has died for them sufficiently and can have the promise that we can taste and experience the resurrected power of Jesus Christ because he has risen from the grave. Oh Lord, let no one walk out of the room this morning without the hope that is found in our living savior. If there is anyone in this room today who has not put their faith in Jesus Christ, oh God, by your spirit's power, would you do for them what you've done for the rest of us? Open their eyes to see and taste that the Lord is good and put their trust in him that they may be saved. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Well, church family, this morning, we wanna do what we do every Sunday here, not just on Resurrected Sunday, but every Sunday. And one of the ways that we experience the living power of Jesus Christ is by remembering his sacrificial death for us through the Lord's Supper and communion. If you're a member helping with communion today, if you'll make your way to the back, grab the elements and begin passing those elements out. And we'll simply say this, this meal that we're about to take, this is a symbolic meal that helps us to remember and savor the salvation that we have freely been given in Jesus Christ. But this meal is for believers in Jesus Christ. One of the ways that we identify who believers are on a local level is through church membership. And so we say this meal ideally is for members of Northway Church brothers and sisters who've put their trust in Jesus Christ. But if you are joining us today as a member of another church in good standing, we would invite you to the table here as well. But if you have yet to put your faith in Jesus Christ, we'd ask you to hold off on this meal. Instead, go back through Luke's account. Consider the facts of Jesus's resurrection, his death and resurrection. Consider the meaning and the purpose of it, that your heart might be drawn to him in faith that you would transfer your trust from yourself to putting your trust into Jesus Christ, that you would no longer try to work or earn your salvation because you can't, but you would put your trust in the one who has earned it for you, Jesus Christ. And for everyone in this room who has done that, then we get the beautiful privilege of remembering and savoring what it was that was accomplished for us. This past Friday was Good Friday. It was 2000 years ago that Jesus took the Passover meal that would have been shared on a Thursday night um, heading into Good Friday that every Jew would have taken to remember God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. But that night, Jesus turned that meal right side up when he showed that all along, it was never about God delivering his people from a physical bondage in Egypt. It was about God delivering his people from the spiritual bondage of sin, Satan, and tyranny of death. And God was merciful to bring about his son, Jesus Christ, to come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. and Lay down his life as an offering for us that we might have our sins forgiven and we through faith in him might receive the righteousness of God and the salvation that he's promised. And in that meal, Jesus took two elements and he took these two elements and he brought them up before the rest of the disciples around that table. And Paul tells us when he wrote to the Corinthians, he said, 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Take this in remembrance of me. And so we take this church family in remembrance of Christ's broken body given for us to Christ. Paul said in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Church family, we drink this in remembrance of Christ's blood that was poured out for our salvation freely. To him we drink. And he said, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Father, until you come, until you come, we drink and we eat of this meal, remembering the free gift that you gave us nearly 2,000 years ago this weekend. And so, Lord, help us in light of the mercy and the grace that you've poured out to not only put our trust into you, but every single day of this life, may we live in that resurrected power proclaiming and heralding the good news of Jesus Christ to all who will listen until that day when you will return and you will take us home to be with you. Seal us up today, Lord, in the the certified hope that we have in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.